then 2011, we got dropped from the label and that's when like the depression started. That was my first bout with depression. I didn't even know what depression was, to be fair. I've been winning my whole life. Before that, like I had all the games, I had all the girls, I was spoiled. I was just winning, winning, winning. And then I got to this point and I was like, ooh, what does this feel like? like I've never experienced this before. And like, I didn't know who to talk to about it because the world wasn't like how it is now. Like when people ask me now, what's the difference between Shocker now and Shocker in 2012? It's just the information. Unfortunately, men's mental health issues are frequently ignored and men tend to neglect their mental health for years. So what is being done to help men's mental health and why is it still so stigmatised? These are the sorts of questions we should be asking ourselves all the time, but particularly this month, as Men's Mental Health Month sees mental health charities prioritise the conversation around men's mental health and help raise awareness of the struggles men can face. This month, I want to allow space for men to talk about their mental health and to normalise it by having them speak openly about their own challenges. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 852 Today, I'm speaking to Shocker, a grime artist who rose to prominence as part of the Tottenham trio Marvel. Shocker has seen the real highs and extreme lows of show business, having seen sudden success and sudden failure, from performing packed-out arena tours alongside famous names such as Skepta, to abruptly being dropped by his record company. Shocker has been brutally honest about the consequences on his mental health and struggled when everything came crashing down. He says that the reason why he thinks it all went downhill for him is because he never had a balance of struggle and success. And when you don't have that balance and it starts going downhill, then you won't know how to deal with that. He's had a couple more recent breakdowns, but has come to the realisation that most people who suffer from mental health and depression are suffering from low self-image, and that's something he's trying to change. I'm speaking to him today about why he wanted to open up about his mental health battle, his experience of being sectioned, and how he's learned to manage his manic depression. You've spoken about being a bit of a comedian and someone who always had a lot of attention as a child. <laughs> yeah. So do you think this stemmed from a deep-seated anxiety or do you think this was just part of your personality? I think it was part of my personality. Comedy runs in my bloodline. Not professionally, like there was professional comics, but my mum is hilarious. Like She's funny. I know I got it from her. <laughs> my dad's not in my life, so I don't know him. So I don't know if he's funny or not. Mm-hmm. But I know I definitely got it from my mum. I remember being young and like my mum was making like... I could just hear everyone laughing, all my aunties and uncles laughing downstairs and then... I just started being a comedian in my own way. Do you think that, you know how some, a lot of comedians, it stems from a, like almost like an alter ego or a different yes, side yes. of their personality. Did you feel a sense of escapism when you were able to go into that comedian role? Yes, in a weird way. And I felt like being a comedian or trying to be funny allowed me to express my truth without being judged. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Comics are they're the most honest people. Mm. If you listen to comedians and what they're saying, it's like they push boundaries of what can be said in society. And I felt like being a comedian that allowed me to do that, allowed me to say certain things to my teachers or in class that you wouldn't normally just 
put your hand up and say yeah no I mean I think it's definitely a case of if you put a funny spin on something yeah. it's sort of like you know a sense of sarcasm in a way yeah. isn't it you and there's don't... always an element of truth in there yeah. yeah, you can have a snidey diggy comment and <laughs> yeah. if it's said in a slightly hilarious way, <laughs> yeah. you can get away with murder. Yeah. What was growing up without a dad like? I'm only feeling the effects of it now. Mm. I think about it a lot now. When I was younger, it was like heaven because like I was thinking I didn't have like an authority figure to like, you know, answer to and I can get away with things with my mom and my mom's sweetheart. Do you know what I mean? I can get away with things. She bought me everything. I was spoiled. I'm only feeling the effects of that now too, so I'll explain that. But when I was younger, it was being spoiled was everything. People, all my friends used to come to my house to play computer games because I had everything. I had PlayStation, Dreamcast, Sega Mega Drive. I had all the games. So everyone's like, oh, let's go to Kenneth's house. He's, you know, he's a fun, my house is the fun house. Like my mum would let you stay up late and all of that was like cool, but it's got its pros and cons. It's got its cons now being spoiled. is like, I find myself lost, like not being able to look after myself. There's certain basic things that I can't do. Like my email wasn't set up by me. It was set up by my friend. Oh, you want an email? Let me help you. And I'm always like being enabled. I mean, someone's like, oh, let me help you do that. Or book a flight ticket. Let me help you do that. So, and that's happened throughout my whole life. So my mom doing that when I was younger. Oh no, let me do it for you. Or when you're young, it's cool because it's like, everyone's just doing everything. But once you get older and no one's there and you find yourself in situations where you're having to like, I had, I got a next door neighbor called Isaac. Well, he's moved out and I live somewhere else. But like, I used to find myself running next door to his house all the time saying my phone just, something's just happened with my phone or like the TV won't be working. And my mom would be like, go get Isaac. But now I'm older, I think, but you could have got me. I should be doing it. you got a son. Do you know what I mean? My arms, legs are working. Why are you telling me to go get my friend? But at that time, I didn't see it as that. I just thought, yeah, go get Isaac. But now I'm older. I'm like, what are you talking about? And like, it can go against you in relationships too mm. with women. That's a major thing. Yeah, that's what I was like, going to say. Yeah, it can go against you with women because like no woman wants a man that can't look after himself or handle himself. That's not attractive at all. Mm. So it's like all these ways didn't work and like with my dad too not being there, I'm only feeling the effects of it now because there's certain things morally and like principles that I've done certain things that was out of character to friends and like if my dad was around, he would have been the first person to show me how to be a man and what morals and what principles to have in society and how to treat people. Not saying my mom couldn't have done that, but my dad would. My dad's a man and I'm a man. So these are the things I'm feeling the effects of now. I think about it all the time. I'm like, oh my God. Because people used to, I, I used to make songs about um, my dad all the time, just getting onto him, just cussing him. But now I'm older, I made a song called Good Fathers. That's the last song I've made about my dad. Not about my dad, but about fathers in general. And I can see the growth. Because I went from cussing him, cussing him, cussing him. Now I'm saying, oh, there is good fathers. And I'm like starting to understand what a good father is. And all my friends have got daughters. And I'm seeing them trying their best to be better fathers. And I'm watching them closely. And I'm like, okay, cool. Maybe like I can't paint all fathers with the same brush. Mm. There's people that really is trying. No, it's really interesting. And I think as you were speaking, I got a sense of a lack of boundaries from both mom and dad. It's like you don't yeah. have a dad to instill the boundaries, but yeah. then mom overcompensates by slightly mollycoddling you. Yeah. But in doing so and sharing you with so much love and affection, it's like yeah. you have no boundaries. Yeah. So in adulthood, I think, and, and I certainly suffer from that as not having many boundaries growing up. Yeah. It suddenly leaves you feeling quite unsafe in the world. Yeah, and exactly. so like, okay, right, I don't really know who I am yeah. or where. And particularly with relationships as well, as you say, 
I can imagine with girlfriends, it's almost like you expect them to look after you in yeah. a way and do what mum like did. Looking, yeah, I was just about to say that. It's like you're looking for like a mum figure. Yeah, and I think that like you said with good father, it's interesting because in that process of grieving a relationship, quite often you go from anger and then you come a full circle and yeah. you actually learn to sort of love in a way or acknowledge or recognise the qualities of fatherhood or mm-hmm. of a particular person. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where your music writing is so powerful and can be yeah. very cathartic. yeah. Definitely. So when did you discover that you had a talent for music and for rapping? Very young. Very young. I've been doing music since I was like 12, 13. It was in me. Mm. It was in me. My friend, who's in prison now, we used to do um, football training. There was a centre in our estate that we used to all go to play football. And he came in one day rapping. Well, we called it MCing at the time because it wasn't even rap. It was like... MCing and he came in MCing and I was like what are you doing what is it sounded like a foreign language I was like but I liked it and I was like what is that and then like he was showing me what it was and who how, who he listened to and there was a group called Heartless Crew and they came to perform we had this thing called presentation so every year they'll give out awards to the best football players and whatever and then they'll get artists to come and perform for us as a um treat or whatever it was and they got Heartless Crew to come and perform and I remember being young and I looked and I was like I want to do that when I'm older and I've got older and I've managed to like meet Heartless Crew and I've got one of their numbers in my phone and like I always look at it and I'm like this is cr- it's such a full circle moment like I went from like being a kid saying I want to do that and now I've got their number in my phone but yeah it started the journey started very young like 11, 12 and did you start writing then? I was writing, but I was, can I swear on this? Yeah. I was writing, but I was chatting shit. It was just like, you know, basic lyrics that everyone starts off with, like lyrics about whatever you're seeing. I was talking about sex when I haven't had sex. I was talking about <laughs> drugs when I haven't sold drugs. I was talking about whatever I was talking about. And how did you find school? Did you Was school something that you thrived in and enjoyed or was school for you a bit of a burden? I hated school. I hated school. And now I'm older, I know why. I knew something was wrong. I knew they was teaching me. I knew they was lying to me. I knew they was lying to me, but I just couldn't put my finger on it. But I was like, why am I not connecting with this? Because like, and I left, and the reason why that's so bad, because it's like, I know there's a lot of people that felt like me that left school feeling like they're dumb or something's wrong with them. But like, I feel like I'm in school now. For the past six years, all I've been doing is putting on my headphones, going onto YouTube and studying things that I, that I want to learn. And I'll be there for hours. Some days I'll be in my bed for hours with my headphones on. I haven't brushed my teeth. I haven't bathed, but I'm so into what I'm learning. So I was like, so there weren't nothing wrong with my attention span. It just wasn't what I wanted to be taught. Mm. But yeah, I didn't. Me in school, I fell terribly in school. I even got shipped to boarding school. Did so you? I went boarding school in Nigeria wow. for two years. That was like a whole different experience. And being, how old were you then? I was like 14, I think. 14, 15. Okay, and then did you stay there for the remainder of your school Yeah, I education? stayed there. Not only for two years. Okay, I got and then, sick and then, and then came I had back. to come back and then I came back and for then I went sixth year. form okay. and college and then I just thought, I'm just going to chase my music. So how did it feel being shipped off to Nigeria? That was shell shocking. That was like a whole culture shock. Their way of living is so different to how we live here. It's so much different. Like I remember like looking for a washing machine. Not saying they don't have washing machines, but for people 
messaged me, what do you mean? We? But um, I meant, but where my family didn't have like, do you know what I mean? So I remember looking for that and I was like, washing machine, you better get a bucket and soap and wash your clothes. And it was teaching me how to wash my clothes. And in boarding school, they had something called an afternoon siesta. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I was like, what's the fucking point? Why, why am I just going to force myself to go to sleep and wake up in the next two hours? It make no sense to me. And they had like afternoon siesta and like you get beats over there. That was like brand new to me because you can tell teachers to fuck off in England and they'll just send you out of the class or send you to the head models or you get suspended for like a week or something. Over there, they will tell you to go to the tree and get the stick that you want to be... You you pluck the stick that you want to be whipped with when you come late to school. Like, Because I did... I experienced both. I was a board, I experienced boarding school and I experienced being a day student. That's what they call it when you're not in the boarding houses. As a day student, when you come in late, you see like a long queue at the gate and that queue is the people that's about to get 10 strokes for being late. And I remember like, I went from hating seeing the queue to like accepting it. Like, yeah, no, just... Because I was yeah. that late all the time. I just, yeah, okay, let's get ready. And you get these thick lines that like come up on your hands. And I remember in um, I remember in the boarding house, someone gave someone piss to drink and left the cup on my wardrobe. And then I got framed that I did it. And I got 30 strokes on my back. They held me down, turned me around, and caned me. For, I was screaming... All my whole back was like swollen. Yeah, it was a horrible experience. Do you find it? Tra- I mean, did you find it traumatizing? Yeah, it was, tra- it was traumatizing. It was extremely and now traumatizing. Do you, I, mean, I didn't do you- go back on t- for fifteen years. I only went back two, like two, three years ago for the first time. But I enjoyed oh that though. And so that was what in the early two thousands. Yeah. Does that still happen now? People getting caned. Yeah. Yeah, of course. That's part of their culture. God, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, yeah. when you think of yeah, I mean, it's a long way behind us. But it does instill discipline into you. Yeah. And that like, respect, it does work because I became, I was cool after that. Like I was proper cool. So what was it like, the transition coming back to the UK and back into a sixth form school here? I came back focused. I came back appreciative. I came back really grateful. I remember looking at McDonald's thinking, yeah. And when I came back, you know the friend that I told you that taught me how to rap? He was like a star when I came back. And I was like, what the fuck happened? What did I miss? That like, I came back and everyone was like, oh, because you've just come back. Is your mom, because there was a party that he was performing at when I came. This is young, you know, we're talking 15. There was the party that he was about to perform at. And because I came back, my mom didn't want me to just come back into like everything straight away. So she wanted me to stay at home for a bit and just, you know, wear my way back in. There was like, oh, you're going to come out tonight because you just come back and see your friend perform. Like, and I was like, what, what are you talking? I couldn't understand what are you talking about? He was a full on star. Everyone knew him. I remember, like, obviously the week after I came back and we went out on the streets and in the area and everyone singing these lyrics and hailing him up. And that drove me so much. Like, I thank him for that because I was like, I feel like having examples in life is so important. Just mm. seeing the possibilities. Even though it was hood fame, that's what we call it, like, just being a star in your area. But, like, just seeing, I didn't know that existed. Like, just seeing how the girls reacted to him. Yeah, that I needed to see that. I love that hood fame. Yeah, that's what we that. call it, that hood silly. Like, he's it. a hood star. And then like, <laughs> yeah. So when was the genesis of Marvel? That was 2008. So quite soon after you coming back. Yeah. And fin- was that after you finished school? Yeah, that was after I finished school. 
And how did that come about? There's two members, Double S and Vertex. I knew Double S because we went to the same school together, like mm-hmm. a year. He was like a star as well. Double S has always been like the star of the group. Like he was like a star from young. So him, my friend that taught me how to rap, there was like little people that was like stars that like in different areas and he was like one of them. But there was another guy, Vertex, that was in the group. He was good with editing and like videos. He did all our videos and editing. And I made this promo, like four or five tracks and I needed someone to do a cover and someone introduced me to him to do it and I left him with my CD and like three weeks went past and like, I never heard nothing from him. And I remember I called him and I was like, what's going on? Like, why have I not heard anything? Where's the cover? And who's like, I'll come in and get it. When I came in, he was like telling everyone, oh my God, this is the guy that left that CD I was telling you about. I was, I was confused. He's like, he is so sick. And then from that, I think he, I don't think he heard the CD. He was just sitting there and he probably thought, right, let me give it a listen. And he listened to it and like, he really loved it. And then um, from that moment on, he was trying to get me into the group. And I remember he offered me to go to One Extra, DJ Semtex. I don't know if you heard of Semtex, but he's on BBC One Extra. And obviously I'm not going to turn down an offer to One Extra because I've I've always listened to One Extra. And then when we went there, Semtex said, who do we have in the building? And he was like, we have Marvel in the building. And I didn't say nothing. I was thinking, okay, it must be official. And then, um, yeah, from that point on, we just, the birth of Marvel was happening and we just went on this incredible journey after that. And what was it like being in a whirlwind of fame and gigs and, I mean, being around quite a quite a fast set and quite a racy crowd? In terms of the fame, I was just talking to my friend. My friend Ben was just having a conversation on the phone. I didn't have the character development. I feel like fame and money can, like, bring out sides of you that you didn't even know existed. I always knew I was, like, a cheeky, you know, confident, but, like, it got through the roof. And, like, fame would do that to you. Like, when you're seeing people, like, practically worshipping your presence and, like, or you get money and, like, I was just telling him, like, you can have no money and, like, you might just go to a regular chicken shop and just get, like, two chicken and chips and, like, and then money comes in and all all of a sudden you get this thought that pops into your head saying you should go gauchos or, like, it's like, where did that come from? Or, like, oh... You should take this girl to this hotel. Like, I was just telling them, like, it's crazy. It's deeper than we know when you have money. Yeah, and it's so interesting that the level of contrast between that boarding school in Nigeria coming yeah. back and the novelty of everything and yeah. seeing McDonald's again for the first that time. That faded, though. I know. You know and that it's gratitude, amazing. it faded I know. Well, like, that's within what, the first three months. I know, and that's what I was going to say. Periodically, it's like we have to almost put ourselves into those situations which yeah. then make us come back into yes. our lives and really appreciate yes. and be yes. able to like revel in the novelty of everything. And I think as humans, we get in such a rut about change and about taking ourselves out of our comfort zones. But actually it's so stimulating and can be so refreshing. It is. And I think particularly those of us who suffer with mental health issues, you do get into a bit of a hole and you think, I want everything the same and you get quite obsessive and locked in. And then suddenly if you extract yourself completely, it's almost like your mind has to reset. And so whilst you're not left problem-free, it makes a shift, which I think is really important to remember and to remind yes. yourself of constantly. Yeah, so dealing with the fame at a young age, because I, like I was mentioning to my friend on the phone just now, it's like, we never had no mentors. I'm starting to um, understand the importance of mentors or just having some sort of guidance is so important. Like, I'm my only child on top of everything. On top, I've got no brothers and no sisters and no dad. and that. So I'm really in the world by myself with just my friends if they care. Mm. So um, 
we never had no mentors. And like, that's so important. You need someone that's gone before you to be like, hey, you're fucking up here. Or like, hey, you need to take this left. We was literally experiencing fame without no one to talk to. No one in our area. Was that the biggest thing in our area? Not, well, there's other people like Chipmunk, Skepta, those doing well. But in where I came from, like, we was like the first people to experience like a lot of firsts. So there's no one to say you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of And. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the AND Partnership's belief in the power of AND, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the AND Partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AND Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. So will you tell us about your breakdown and what led you into ending up in hospital? So we got signed in 2010, our first like big situation after all that years of work. And then um, the song was predicted to do really well because of how much money we spent on the campaign, which I've learned a lot now. It doesn't matter how much you spend on the campaign. If the people don't like the music, they don't like the music. You can't manipulate it like that as much as we think we can. But we spent, well, not even we, our label spent so much money on the campaign and everything. And the song came out and it didn't do good. It went like, I don't even know where it went. I remember us looking for it that week. I always tell the story. We was looking for it. We couldn't find it in the top 100, couldn't find the top 200. And it was like, oh my God, we haven't. No one bought it. No one cared about the song. And like, I took that really hard compared to like my two friends. Because people always ask me like, how come you got sectioned? What happened? How did Double S take it? And how did Vertex take it? But I was like, they never had the pressure that I had. Double S was a star, as I told you. So even when he was doing Marvel, he was doing like solo features and solo shows. And like, so I know he probably thought, if this doesn't work, I've still got my solo thing to do. Vertex was doing videos. He was doing Tinchy Strider's video, Chipmunk's videos, and N-Dubs' videos. So he was probably thinking, if this doesn't work, I've got videos to fall back on. Me, on the other hand, I had nothing. Like, this was like my main thing. Like, Marvel needs to work. I didn't get no GCSEs. As I said, I went to school and boarding school. I worked in sports world. That's the only job I ever had, which I got sacked from. I got fired from sports world. So, like, I really needed music to work. And in my mind at that time, I felt like it was over because we was right at the door. And, like, what I've learned about this music thing is that that initial buzz you get when you first come in, you don't get that all the time. It's a, like you have to execute it on that one time. Like if you're really lucky and you can reinvent yourself in a special way, you can get like a buzz again. But once people seen you, like even now that I've reinvented myself and I've got dreads and I've done all this stuff, people still say, oh, shocker from Marvel. Do you know what I mean? There's still like an audience that know who I am. So I'm not completely like brand new. So when that happened, end of 2010, we got signed. 2010, 10, 10, 10, the single came out. It didn't do too good. 
Then 2011, we got called in by the label and we got dropped from the label and that's when like the depression started. That was my first bout with depression. I didn't even know what depression was, to be fair. I've been winning my whole life. Before that, like I had all the games, I had all the girls, I was spoiled. I was just winning, winning, winning. And then I got to this point and I was like, ooh, what does this feel like? Like I've never experienced this before. And like, I didn't know who to talk to about it because... The world wasn't like how it is now, how we're having, like, I can't believe we're having this podcast about mental health and my journey. And if you had spoken to me then, Mm -hmm. 2011 times, I couldn't even begin to even start. So, like, I kept all of that in. And then I remember, like, end of 2011, it was December, because I got sectioned twice in December. Because my friends used to have this joke, like, December's coming, like, don't have a break. That Like, this joke, like, December used to always creep up and, like, they'll just get a call, like, oh, you know, Shocker's back in hospital again. Mm. I remember, um, yeah, I came home and I just exploded. I don't know what I was trying to say to my mum, but I was trying to say something to her, but the words weren't coming out. And my mum was realising that something's wrong. She knew something's wrong because we don't talk. So for me to come to her and like start babbling stuff, she knew something was wrong. And I remember like, obviously, the African culture, her first thought was, let me call a pastor. Like that's, like, that's what they thought. So she called like this pastor from Nigeria and I remember him praying to me on the phone line. But it wasn't like, I still felt the same. And then luckily I had an uncle that was living upstairs in, my, in, our, in our house and he was a doctor. So he came downstairs, saw me and he was like, oh, your son's having a breakdown. We used to call the ambulance and they called the ambulance. And that's how I got sectioned for the first time. I got put in a hospital called St. Anne's mm-hmm. and I spent five days in there. It was really quick, but yeah, quick. the damage was already done. Yeah. Just being exposed to that environment and going through that, even though it was just five days, it stayed with me. That trauma didn't leave. That's mm-hmm. why I got sectioned deep. I'm not deep. 2012, 14, 2014. So I got sectioned at two years after. Mm. Because like, even though I was back with my friends and I was back in society, that experience wouldn't leave my mind. Like I didn't, and I didn't have the tools. Like when people ask me now, what's the difference between shocker now and shocker in 2012? It's just the information. Mm. I've had so much information and interactions mm. that's allowed me to, because I have blips all the time. I went Barcelona like two weeks ago and I nearly had a breakdown out there. Mm. But I had so much information that I knew how to like, mm. do you know what I mean? Readjust and get myself back. Whereas those times, I had nothing. So mm. I didn't know where to, I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know where to start. I didn't know how to, none of my friends had been sectioned. I'm the only one out of my friend circle that had ever experienced anything like getting put into an ambulance and mm. put onto a ward with like other patients. Like I always say like, the longest I've been sectioned is like two and a half weeks. But I always say that anything beyond that two and a half weeks, I don't think I would have made it out because the environment is so different to the outside world that I would have come out and like not known how to readjust to like the outside world's behavior, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's terrifying. You know, terrifying places. Like wars. It is scary. And, it, yeah. and you're also exposed to some very extreme cases yeah. of... Of people who are very, you know, psychotically very, yeah, very like ill. Yeah, like screaming at night. Yeah. Or you come out and people are rushing to someone's um, room and you're asking what happened and they're like, oh, he just, he's trying to kill himself. Or like, if I was to describe being section to someone, as funny as this may sound, it's like going on an unhappy holiday. <laughs> like, it's like someone saying you're going on a holiday somewhere for two weeks and you're going to be unhappy 
for the whole... There's not a day you're... There weren't a day I woke up during that two weeks and said, oh, you know, it's getting better. I'm like a bit happy. I remember waking up one, like, after sleeping and waking up one morning, the first patient I saw, he was like, oh, mate, um, it didn't work. I was like, what didn't work? He was like, oh, there was, I found a bit of rat poison and I tried to take it and it didn't... I was like, is this the first thing I'm hearing? Like... What, where, the, where am I? Like, what is going on? Imagine that. Like, usually the first thing you hear is like, good morning, or have you had your breakfast, or do you know what I mean? Or you scroll on Instagram and you might see certain things. But that was the first thing I heard. Came up my room just to see, you know, what's going on. And he's rushing towards me saying it didn't work. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, really heavy stuff. I mean, and really disturbing. What, aside from medicating you, did they offer any psychological support? no. That's why I said the information helped me because, like, I did most of the work by myself, not to like make them seem bad or anything, but it's the truth. Mm. The only thing they did was give me medication. I'm still on a medication now. It's a tablet called Risperidone. Mm -hmm. It helps you like sleep at night. Mm -hmm. And then they come see you and ask you how you are, how you're coping. Like, my friends can do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, what really helped me was conversations like this. Mm-hmm. Like normalizing my situation in my mind. So taking off the importance of it and making it a normal situation. And that allowed me to like heal and like begin to like be open enough to speak about the traumatic things that happen and like be vulnerable enough to talk. That's mm-hmm. what really helped me. But them asking me like, oh, how are you? And are you take make sure you don't come off your med because that's what happened to me. I've been sectioned four times. And most of it was because I kept coming off my medication. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I kept coming off my medication was because I never saw the importance of being on medication in the first place. They didn't really break it down to me, if you know what I mean. They just said, like, keep taking the medication. So I would, like, take it and then I'll come off it for two days. Nothing has happened. I think, oh, yeah, I'm cool. And then, like... Two months later. Two months later, all these thoughts start coming from nowhere and you start getting paranoid. And I got diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, yeah? It is one of the most frightening things that out of all of them, out of the like anxiety, depression, bipolar, when you're going through like a schizophrenic episode, I can't begin to explain it. It's like, I tried to explain it on another interview. I said it's like putting on VR glasses and the VR glasses is like, that you've put on is that all your worst fears and, but you're in that world by yourself. Yeah. Everyone else looking at you thinks, what's he getting parent? I can't see what he's... Mm. It's indescribable. Someone else I interviewed calls it the Truman Delusion. It's yeah. like you're li- literally yes. living... Yes, that's a good way the, to put it. Yeah, it's true. Show. And like, the worst paranoia that reoccurs is that thought of everyone is against me or trying to... And that's scary because like, you have to bump into people. I've had episodes when I'm on a train... And I'm like, you know, everyone's packed together and you're feeling like, is he going to swing a punch? Is he like, it's scary. Mm. The only, I've, I've managed to always be able to keep my composure till I get home. And then it's like, I just let loose and my auntie comes in and says, what's wrong with you? Da, 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 da. But on the train, it's like, I've managed to like, I just don't feel like I'm safe enough to have a breakdown in public. Not mm. in today's world. People get their phones out and not know how to deal with it or like. Well, this is the trouble with phones, right? It's just, everything is just instantly accessible and yeah. also filmable and yeah. you know photograph I mean it's really terrifying when you're yeah. really living through something quite traumatic and I'm semi like a star which is like on top I can't I can't imagine yeah yes yeah, I yeah. really can't I mean I get that paranoia sometimes of, oh my god I'm being followed yeah. oh my god someone's looking at me oh yeah. they're laughing they must be yeah. laughing at me but when you're actually and it's so when you come out of it it's like you struggle to even tell it apart you're like I'm sure that was so real 
Or even like when um, when people tell you how you was behaving while it was happening. Like my auntie told my DJ, because obviously when I went to hospital, my auntie, everyone was trying to find me. Where have I gone? Mm-hmm. And my auntie's telling him, oh, he's just gone back in. And my auntie was telling my DJ that he wasn't talking. Like I was literally like, just she's trying to respond, I just wasn't talking. But I was, in my mind, I was having a great conversation. But like, I couldn't just physically verbalize it. But like, I think back to when she says that, and I'm like, because I like talking. That's why I'm here. I like expressing myself and, you know, getting my thoughts out. So for me to be completely shut, like not talking, not responding to her, she's asking, what's going on? Explain yourself. You know, tell me. Da, 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 da. It's like, yes, yeah. So how often do you have a breakdown? I mean, can you can you predict when you're going to have one and can you use your toolbox now yeah. to avoid it? And I to- can. I can. I can predict when I... It's almost like when you get drunk. You know, like when you just get tipsy and that flick goes across. Mm. In your mind, you're like, oh, that just hit me. Like, I'm tipsy. That's what it's like when you're just getting ill. It's like this flick goes across and you can just feel it. It's a feeling. You're like, oh, whoa, something's not right here. Or someone might be talking to you and you're interpreting in a different way. You're like, oh, it's starting. But I've been sectioned a few times. So, like, mm. I know, like, how to, like, now get myself back and... And how do you do that? I can, like, reassure myself that, like, it's not what you're thinking it is. Do you know what I mean? Like, just stay in the situation for, like, a minute. It's all about being safe. I realised, like, it's a major part. Most of it arises when you feel like you're not safe. But as soon as I can convince myself that, no, you're safe, then everything just starts to balance out and I just start to, like, normal out. But it's, that safe thing is so important. So in terms of therapy, yeah. did you have you had any therapy? I've never gone therapy. I was a proper stereotype to the stigma of therapy. Mm. Like, sitting in front of someone, like, like what we're doing now and being able to have to expose that. Because if you're not going to be honest with your therapist, there's no point. Because they can't really help you. It's like your doctor saying, what's wrong with you? And you lie. It's like, <laughs> I don't think I was ready to like, go to a therapist and be like, extremely honest and, you know, talk. I weren't ready. So I tried to find an alternative. I was like, maybe I'm going to use my music as therapy and be as honest as that in my music. And I did. Because I always say like, there's a few ways that you can get out your vulnerability. You can do it for a therapist, sitting down with a therapist. You can do it with your partner if you've got your boyfriend or girlfriend. You can do it with your best friend if you've got a friend you're close to. You can do it through your art. I chose to do it for my art. I couldn't do it through any... I never had a partner at the time. I didn't have the confidence to talk to my friends about it. And um, I didn't want to go to a therapist. So I was like, I'm going to use my art. Mm. And I used my art and it's like, it's been serving me ever since. So relationships now, I mean, I know that having mental illness coupled with relationships can be really, really challenging. Have you found that you've been able to be in a healthy relationship? Yes, because the time that we're in has helped so much. Because it's kind of like, people understand more. People are more, I can't explain it. People are more compassionate towards mental health now. People want to understand. You know, before you couldn't even have the conversation. Mm. Now people want to know, like, Talk to me, like I'll, I'll, if even if I can't help you, I'm. I still want to see if I can understand where you're coming from, and that helps a lot. Being able to like talk to a girl and say in the conversation straight away that I've been sectioned and you know I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, and like what I've noticed a lot of the time is that they have family members. Like one of the last girls I was speaking to, her sister had something similar to like schizophrenia, so like. They have family members or friends that's been through it. 
even though it's not them, I don't even know how to put it. It's like, what I'm noticing a lot is that they haven't, they've been embarrassed to speak about it because it's their family members. Mm. And like, when I, whenever I say that I've gone through that, it opens up that conversation that they've never managed to have for years. They've never managed to say, oh, my sister's been, do you know what I mean? And it kind of strengthens the connection, actually. I'd love to ask you about your song, Self Love. Yes. Will you just talk me through what your concept of self-love is and how you've come to arrive at that point where you can love yourself? There's a woman called Louise Hay. Do you know who she is? No. Uh, she's incredible. My friend had her book on her WhatsApp story. And, I, and this is when I was searching for information. I just wanted anything that could help me. So I definitely know I attracted that. She had it on her story and I was like, is that a good book? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, I'm buying it. And I bought it and the whole book was about self-love, but in a way that I've never heard about because everyone, I always thought self-love was like going on holiday and going to a spa for two days and, you know, going to your favorite restaurant and getting a facial and pampering yourself. But she said, no, self-love is how you speak to yourself. That is the greatest form of self-love. If you can't speak to yourself in a positive way, or a nice way. I don't care what you do, what pampering you do for two minutes, you're still going to revert back to talking to her badly. And as she goes, once you can master that, you'll experience little miracles. And that's exactly how she put it in the book. Read the book, it says that. It goes, once you start loving yourself, you start experiencing little miracles. And she's right. As soon as I changed my internal dialogue into like a more positive one and an uplifting one, I started speaking to myself like I'm a champion and cheering myself on. I'm telling you, I started getting, e- Ted, no, I said TED Talk email. Hussein wanted me on tour. Adidas um, campaign. Sold out shows. Um, <laughs> everything just started, all these little miracles. And I was like, is it that easy? And I was like, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be promoting this message. I have to. I have to make this my life mission. She's passed on now. And I've taken the baton from her. Like, I'm like, I'm just going to, I have to like, and I was like, what's the first way I can start? Okay, cool. Self-love. I'm going to make a song. I'm an artist, I've got this talent. This is why I've got the talent, because I can make songs out of anything. I'm going to take everything I learned from the book and I'm going to put it into the song. But that song was meant to be because someone called me on private number and said, hey, Shoka, I got your number from somewhere. I got this producer. I wanted to work with him. I'm not wasting the time. Just give him a try. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Since I gave you my number, we might as well just try. He gave me the producer's number. I messaged the producer and said, have you got any beats? The producer said... I've got a beat I'm working on, but it's not for you. It's not what you do. And I was like, no, don't ever box me in. Because when I was in Marvel, we used to rap on Britney Spears and all these weird left things, which prepared me for that moment. So I was like, no, bro, send it to me. I'm versatile. I can do anything. Because he thought I was just a conscious rapper of like a deep message. And then he sent me the beat and it was the self-love beat. And I had it on repeat for like two days. The beat was just, you've heard the song. Mm. It's just so uplifting. I was like, what am I going to do on this? And I was like, oh my God. I looked at the book, I was like, that's it. Self-love, I'm going to put what I learned in that, into that. And I just said, you give everybody else love, but you never give. And I was like, how can I talk to someone that is not loving theirself and get that message across that you give everybody else love? Because I didn't want the song to be about, I love myself so much. I wanted the song to be about, I don't love myself enough mm. and I need self-love. So I was like, you give everybody else love, but you never give yourself love. Don't forget about yourself love. Self-love. You give everybody else love, but you never give yourself love. Don't forget about yourself love. Self-love. And then song just took her legs of his own. Snoop Dogg posted on his Instagram and someone messaged me saying they want to shoot the video for me. And the song just 
It's my most important song ever. I don't think I'm ever going to have a... I'll have a bigger song than that, but not a song that means more to me. And the book is next. The book is next. The book's called um, A Section of My Life. It's about everything I said to you, plus more. You know, like the little intricate stuff where it's like, oh, okay. That's why he didn't mention that. That's a bit harder to just say. But there's a bit more in the book. I'm excited about the book. It's got poems in there as well. And it's got questions. It's like a journal you can write in it. And when I got sectioned last year, I wrote so many poems. And then I came out, I represent this charity called Beyond. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to Louise and I was like, oh, can you get me a, I wanted it to be a poem book. I wanted it to be like, you know, Tupac's got a book called The Rose That Grew From Mm. The Concrete where he wrote all those poems. I wanted it to be like that. But then they said, if someone just picked up your poems and read all this stuff about you being sectioned, they're going to be like, I want to know the story. Why is he talking about this? How did he arrive here? So they said, put your story and have the poems weaving in and out of the story. And I was like, yeah, that's perfect. Oh, well, it's been such a pleasure to have you here today. And I just, yeah, thank you so much for making it. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Thank you.